on this special episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, recorded live during the Fall 2022 Northeast ASC Conference in Waltham, Massachusetts. We interview some of the speakers at the conference and the leadership of the association. Welcome to the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, the longest-running podcast specifically focused on the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. We would like to thank our sponsors, Surgical Information Systems, providing cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers, Trivalence. Trivalence offers a comprehensive next-generation ASC solution that optimizes payment and supply chain performance, enabling actionable data insights, and Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies the nation's leading regulatory and accreditation compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, please visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. Welcome to episode 172 of the ASC podcast with John Gailey for October 30th, 2022, recorded live during the fall 2022 Northeast ASC conference in Waltham, Massachusetts. This is Sue Cronkite, chief researcher for the ASC podcast with John Gailey and senior nurse consultant for ambulatory healthcare strategies. The ASC regulatory environment is extremely dynamic and the material provided in this episode is based on information available as of the date of the recording. Joining me is John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. He is recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. Mr. Gailey is the author of over 10 books on the ASC industry and a frequent industry speaker on regulatory accreditation and finance issues. Lori Rodericks and I had a great opportunity mm-hmm. to uh, travel to uh, Walton, Massachusetts. Uh, yeah. And it's the first time that we had, well, it's the first time the association had been together since 2019. Mm. Uh, they had been virtual since then. Um, and of course, uh, uh, that that made for a, a lot of... Uh, a lot of reunions, probably. That's people right. It, it was, it was a lot of fun to, go, uh, to yeah. see all these people. And I hadn't actually been there uh, in 2019. Lori gets there every year, but I don't always uh, have that opportunity. Uh, and we we competed. Our speeches were <laughs> simultaneously. So uh, Lori won. She had more people in her mm-hmm. section, which I think I think talking about uh, infection control mm-hmm. was a lot more interesting than talking about finance. But uh, nonetheless, we we had a lot of fun. Got to to meet uh, some people that we've worked with uh, over the years, and certainly we had some great interviews uh, during the conference. And I do want to thank Greg DeConcilius for being so willing to uh, work with me during the conference. This is the first time we'd ever done any uh, recordings during the conference, mm-hmm, and they mm-hmm. gave us a little room off to the side there that we could do this in. So uh, I'm very grateful that uh, we had this opportunity to uh, kind of on the fly put together uh, a special program. So let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll have each of the interviews. It's been a long day, and the surveyor has just left, and you are exhausted and looking at the list of items that you have to address. You wonder, how can I deal with this and still take care of my patients? More importantly, you wonder, 
How can I ever keep up with all of the regulations, standards, and accreditation requirements? How can I always be prepared for a survey and reduce my stress levels? Well, that's what Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies does, day in, day out. We become your outsourced regulatory and accreditation resource. We can maintain your policy manual, develop your education programs, help out with fire and disaster drills, do your risk assessments, oversee your quality improvement activities, help run your quality improvement meetings and governing body meetings, and we can even prepare your monthly or quarterly financial statements and help you figure out where you are financially. We are a retainer-based service. We don't take ownership. We don't charge based on your revenue. We have one fixed monthly fee, and we can tailor your services to your exact needs. So whether you're looking for help getting over a survey, preparing for a survey, or looking for a long-term relationship to assist you with your ongoing regulatory and or financial needs, please give us a call at 585-594-1167 or email us at info at ahstrategies.com. That is info at ah-strategies.com or visit our website at ah-strategies.com. Our first interview was with uh, Victor Alves. He is with Octarius Rx, and he spoke on medication management issues. And we've talked to uh, Victor a couple times on the podcast in the past. So uh, he's always a great person to interview, and he always has a lot of great information. So let's listen. So this is John Gailey. I'm here at the Northeast ASC Conference in Waltham, Massachusetts, uh, and I'm here with Victor Alves. Uh, Victor, you and I have uh, spoken before. You were, uh, I met you during the pandemic, during one of our uh, our virtual conferences there, and uh, you would take care of a number of our clients uh, throughout the country. So you're about to do a speech. As we're recording this, you haven't done it yet, and I'm trying to jet out. So thank you for taking the time beforehand. So Victor's uh, uh, session is on how to, a- I think it says, how to ace your next survey. And of course, you're talking about pharmacy in particular. So uh, welcome to the podcast. Tell me a little bit about what you're going to speak on. So thank you, John, for, for having me. It's um, it's a pleasure to speak with you and uh, and to tell you a little bit about the topic today. We are talking about the uh, the most common survey deficiencies mm-hmm. uh, and, and how facilities can work to minimize their risks and keep their patients safe, which obviously leads to great surveys. So we're going to talk about uh, the usual things that uh, when it comes to medication management, safe medication management, and Mm -hmm. so uh, safe injection practices. We're going to talk about uh, how to handle multi-dose, single-dose vials, uh, look-alike, sound-alike medications or the confused drug names as they're now referred to, uh, high-alert medications. Uh, One of the topics I'm going to spend a little bit of time on uh, is a hot topic, has been for for a number of years now, as well as diversions and and how Mm, to minimize your risk when it comes to controlled substances. And then we're going to talk a little bit about disposal of medications as well. And um, and so that's... um, that's a lot of things in, in one short uh, yeah. one short talk, but uh, we're and of course we only have fifteen minutes, whereas you got thirty at, at sixty. So that's right. So let, let's talk about uh, safe injection practices first. Obviously, one of the hot topics for surveys, and what are you seeing out there, and what can they do to prepare? So uh, it's the usual things when it comes to to handling the uh, the multi dose vials, uh, multi dose or single dose vials. Uh, making sure that we're labeling them properly, yeah. not only putting a label on them, but also uh, clearly delineating that that's a beyond use date or yeah. an expiration date on the vial. Uh, that happens uh, quite a bit. Uh, either vials not labeled or vials labeled with just a date. And we don't really know whether that's an open date, an expiration yeah. date, a, or technically a beyond use date. And so making sure that facilities understand properly using uh, multi-dose vials when it comes to the 
patient care areas versus medication preparation areas. Right. Uh, any any vial, of course, that's used in a uh, patient care area should become dedicated to that patient and become single patient only. Uh, things that you uh, often see, and, and it will not surprise anybody to hear, that anesthesia carts are a great place to find some of these uh, hidden yeah, treasures yeah. of, uh, of uh, non-compliance. And, and so it's usually easy because that. they leave them unlocked. So, <laughs> <laughs> which is an additional, you know, we'll get to, right. you know, we'll, we'll discuss that during the control substance uh, portion. But uh, anesthesia is easy to pick on, uh, but uh, but it happens throughout the facility, of course. And nursing is uh, is is responsible for dating as well of the vials. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we'll talk about proper handling of those, how to how to use single dose vials and of course making sure that we're not using single dose vials for multiple patients, patients yeah. and, and that happens as well too. And, and that's an immediate jeopardy issue. People need to realize that that's taken very seriously during a survey. There there are many aspects of, of what we're going to talk about that are when it comes to medication management that could be immediate jeopardy and, yeah. uh, and I, I think a lot of times it's taken for granted that it's not a big deal but in fact it is a big deal not right. only from patient safety standpoint but from a survey standpoint. What do you think in terms of multi-dose vials? Is there, you know, there's been challenges lately with the supply chain, being able to get the right size, you know, bottles. Any movement on this or is there any attempt on the part of the vendors to make reasonable size vials and uh, make it so, single dose? Yeah, so the, the, the drug shortages um, have played an important role in, in patient safety and, and certainly uh, COVID has not helped the situation. We've seen uh, multiple incidents of errors being reported as a result of people finding workarounds to, yeah. you know, to the drug shortages. I, I put out a newsletter on a frequent basis, and in, in one of those uh, newsletters that I, I, I try to, to address. Uh, drug shortages. And and one of the things that we've noticed is that the list keeps on growing. And so uh, as a result, there's always something, whether it's because of a recall or because of uh, increased uh, supply demand or factory being shut down. We know we uh, rely on uh, many countries for our medications, China being one of them. Uh, Factories being shut down. We saw this with, uh, with Contrast Media. If a factory is shut down, we can't get a supply. There's mm-hmm. also distribution issues. If you've gone to the supermarket and noticed that the shelves are empty, that happens with drugs as well, too. Yeah. And so getting them to, to the centers has been has been an issue. Of course, cost has been an issue as yeah. a result of that. So so there have been a lot of different, different um, difficult pain points when it comes to that. And ultimately, uh, it has led facilities to find workarounds. Now, if they've got a good consultant pharmacist who can guide them on safely doing that, they can find ways to sort of mitigate that that mm-hmm. uh, that need uh, while also you know minimizing their risk. Not all facilities do that, and and again, um, you know, working with somebody who's expert in that area can can go a long way to to, to sort of um, help them do that in a in an efficient and safe way. Well, we need to make it clear too that. Uh, you can't go to a surveyor and say, well, the reason I'm using this multi-dose, this uh, single-dose vial on multiple patients is to save money or because I can't get the product. That is not going to fly in a survey. That's still going to get you cited for that. I, I absolutely agree. And yeah. I think that uh, ultimately you have to you have to make every decision. And, and this sounds sort of, you know, like I'm, I'm preaching from, from the soapbox, but you have to make every decision based on uh, patient safety first. Right. And Correct. so if you take the patient's uh, well-being uh, and, and at, at, at heart and, and look at that uh, as first and foremost on your list of, you know, critical checkoffs before you make a decision, 
I think ultimately that'll that'll pay off. And so at the very bottom of that list should be the financial implication, right? Absolutely. Uh, of course, cost is always an issue and we need to consider that, but we can't say cost first and patient safety yeah. second. And so when it comes to whether it's multiple dose vials, single dose vials, regardless of what it is during a shortage, um, the workaround has to be safe, number one. And then if it's cost, cost effective, then of course that helps as well. And, and of course, and that's, that's one, another reason why working with an expert will help you sort of navigate that that territory mm-hmm. and it's difficult and it's it's dynamic right it's never the same resolving drug shortage a is almost never the same as resolving drug shortage number two yeah. right they're all independently uh, they're different whether it was yeah. because again of a recall or a factory that's shut down the type of drug that it is how it's supplied normally um, what your potential workarounds are all of those things impact how you deal with the next drug shortage, and that's why they're not always the same. Well, let me put my pitch in. Uh, you know, th- there are some states out there that don't even require, you know, a pharmacy consultant. I, I want to put a pitch in because I, I feel so passionate about this, the need to have a pharmacy consultant, whether you're required to have it or not, and also to consider regular visits, not just like semi-annual or annual visits, even if they're not required. Um, I, I feel that a good pharmacy consultant, like you are, um, is, is actually going to save the center money and, more importantly, might bring things to, to their attention, might be able to find sources of drugs or alternative drugs uh, that they weren't able to get, you know, and, and think about the impact. You're saving money. Uh, and more importantly, you're reducing the risk that you're going to have to cancel cases because you don't have the right drugs. So of course, and, that's my pitch. And I appreciate that. And, and most of the clients that I actually work with are not required to have a consultant pharmacist. Yeah. They do it out of being proactive uh, from a patient safety right. standpoint, from a from a <clears throat> minimizing risk standpoint for themselves. The, uh, litigation, of course. Yeah. Uh, Laurie mentioned a brilliant quote earlier today in, uh, in her speech about... Um, you know, if you think that compliance is expensive, try non-compliance. <laughs> right, right. Uh, I don't know who that's attributed to, but yeah, it's an excellent quote, one. and it's absolutely true. Yeah. Uh, so it, it, it's um, it's one of those things that for the facilities that are proactive, and, and mm-hmm. you know, obviously my clients are, there are many facilities out there that are proactive. Uh, they're working ahead of, of the curve. And yes, it costs you a little bit of money up front to, to work on having solid compliance in place. Yeah. But in the end, the amount of money that that saves you from a potential patient harm standpoint is um, it, it far outweighs the, that cost. Absolutely. And so, uh, so the the um, the facilities that are that are you know thinking ahead and and, and sort of um, planning for the future and are not too short sighted about you know spending uh, a few hundred dollars on a particular uh, cost will uh, set themselves up uh, nicely for uh, for success, not only with patient safety, but of course, from a regulatory standpoint, uh, when their surveys come around. Right. It's one of my favorite topics is a surveyor, lookalike, sound alike, but now I have to get used to the term confused drug names. Last, it was so much easier for me. Uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you got to talk to your, your uh, pharmacy associations here that make this easier for us. The, uh, so, confused drug names. Wow. But anyway, talk a little bit about what's going on with that. So this was uh, a decision that I, I don't particularly like. Um, I, I happen to think that lookalike, soundalike is a better descriptor of what yeah. we're dealing with. Uh, lookalike, soundalike um, is, is pretty easy to understand. It's medications that either look alike or sound alike, uh, either on, on paper or when we speak Verbally, them, yeah. versus confused drug names. And I actually have in my presentation today some examples of drugs that 
don't look alike and don't sound alike, but there are potential issues with packaging that make them yeah. potential hazards. Um, and, and so uh, they're not confused drug names at all. In fact, in some cases, it's the same drug, but in different packages. Yeah, yeah. And so that can cause a safety issue. And we're going to talk about the, you know, the, the ways that that can cause issues. So I think that um, a better, uh, the better terminology, again, my opinion, is look alike, sound alike, because it's more inclusive of all of the yeah potential uh, issues that we run into because not all of the drugs that we run into in, in, in this category are confused drug names. They're, they're often not confused at all from a, from a written standpoint or from a spoken standpoint. Some are, but not all of them. And so I think lookalike, soundalike is, is more inclusive. Uh, I think it's okay, in, in my opinion, for if facilities want to include both terms in, in their policies and That's in, what in we're their practice. Yeah, that is Be- what we're recommending. Because though. that way it sort of meets the expectation of, of the quote unquote new terminology, but it also still keeps the old terminology, which we're all familiar with. And quite frankly, we all know that we see these the labels, the lookalike, soundalike labels everywhere. Yeah. We're not going to replace those with, you know, confused drug name yeah. labels. Um, can't, can't quite fit it onto it's the... Not the, as, the it's the, not the, as catchy and it's, yeah. not, uh, it's not as easy to, uh, to, to put on there. Yeah. So another one of my hot topics right now is I, I'm going into centers and seeing... Um, you know, I'll open up or I'll look in. I, I don't go into it, but I, I look inside the Sharps container and there's full syringes of propofol. Mm-hmm. Just drives me nuts. Talk a little bit about what uh, what's happening there and the uh, the potential problems. So one of the things that uh, I speak to my facilities about all the time is proper disposal of medications. Yeah. And, and, and that includes regular medications, controlled substances, and, and hazardous medications as well. You need to have a system in place for all of those. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the first and foremost is to not to not use the Sharps container for disposal. Right. I always joke that it's a Sharps container for Sharps, not for medications. If it was for medications, it would be called a medication container. Yeah. And so I tell my facilities they need to have a system in place. Usually one of the charcoal-based products to, to use mm-hmm. for disposal, they should expel the syringe. The syringe then goes in the Sharps container. It should be empty, which going in the Sharps container should be yeah. empty. We know that, and these products aren't that expensive. Yeah, they're relatively cheap and um, and and easy to use. Right, and and so they even it, a doctor could figure it out. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> it's not it's not that difficult. And so um, I, I you know the the, the joke is that uh, even anesthesia, if anesthesia can figure it out. We can we can all figure it out. And and I say that you know I kid as I always say because I love um, have uh, have a lot of friends and, and colleagues that are that are uh, practicing in in that field and um, and they often ask about that. And so that's mm-hmm. a great it's a great question. It's something that facilities need to have a system in place for. Uh, they need to be cautious of all medications, uh, especially controlled substances. And, yeah. and, you know, you and I would never think of um, going into a Sharps container for anything, right. period, end, right. of, end of paragraph. But there have been instances, there reported instances of, of people going into Sharps containers to, to then use divert medications that have been partially used. And, uh, yeah. and again, the infection control standpoint uh, is something we can talk about for, for days on end. It's a, it's yeah. a non-starter for, for anybody in the healthcare field. But... For somebody who's desperate, for somebody who's looking to to divert medications, it's a perfectly good opportunity. And so yeah. it has happened, it continues to happen, and that's why we need to educate facilities on properly disposing of medications. That segues nicely to our last topic, which is diversion. Um, I will say, and I think you and I have spoken about this, that we've seen, uh, even among our 70 clients, an increase in the number of diversions by the least likely people in the center and unfortunately, uh, you know, it, it's one of those things that uh, we're, we're telling people you got to keep an eye out for. Um, and we're not talking, you know, 
we're not talking small centers here either. You know, though it happens to small centers too. It happens, you know, no matter how strong your controls are. So talk a little bit about the challenges that we're dealing with with diversions now. Yeah, so diversions are impacting everybody, and it's one of the things I'll be speaking about today. And um, and it's it's great that you mentioned uh, the the small centers. Uh, one of the things I mentioned in my talk today is don't think that just because you have not been impacted by a diversion that it will never hit you right. or that that because you're a small center, we only have a staff of X, right? It's a small staff. We all know each other. We go to each other's, you yeah. know, christenings and, and whatever uh, other events. It's not going to happen here. We're all equally susceptible to it. Yeah. Of course, facilities with more moving parts have more potential for things to go wrong. But all of these facilities need to worry about the potential for diversion. So having systems in place for how do we order medications? How do we store them? How do we yeah. uh, distribute them throughout the center throughout the day? How do we document that? Uh, how do we dispose of them as we just talked about? All of those things need to be in place. Systems need to be in place so that come the end of the day, you're able to track or any part of the day, really, you should be able to track your control substances down to one single tablet or, you know, one yeah. single dosage form. Um, and follow up on any any discrepancies immediately while people are still in remembering it. Exactly. I tell facilities uh, at the very latest, and of course you're not going to wait, you should not wait, but at the very latest by the end of shift, you need to figure out yeah. what went wrong and, and what happened so that you have uh, a plan in place for moving forward because you may in fact have a legitimate diversion that you need to act upon. Right. Or most of the time, what you have, and I don't want people to get complacent because this is the majority of the time, you have a math issue. Somebody yeah, put down a, yeah. a, a one instead of a two, or maybe it was a one instead of a 10, or vice versa. And so the numbers are off, and then when you do the math, you figure out that it was just a mathematical error. But I don't want people to find complacency in that and, and say, most of the time it's math, so we don't need to worry about it. You do. You need to use the math first to, to, to save you, hopefully. Yeah. But if it's not a math issue and you really have a diversion, you then need to have systems in place as to how do you report it within your structure, within right. your, your management structure? How do you report it to your state, to the DEA? All of those systems need to be in place so that don't wait for the diversion to happen yeah. to then say, what do we do? And certainly I get a lot of calls when it comes to that kind of thing because not everybody has all the I's dotted and the T's crossed. Yeah. And so I get the panic call of, Victor, we, I think we, we have a diversion. What do we do? And so at that point, it's much more difficult if you don't have a system in place than if you do have a system because if you have a system, you start going through your list of what do we need to do first and mm -hmm. second and so forth. If you don't, then it's a little bit more of a, of a fire drill, but we get through it. And, uh, and it's one of the things that, you know, that I help my clients with. But the things that I like to uh, help most with is being proactive, being prepared, not waiting for things to go wrong to then fix them. Let's, let's right. be proactive and, and set up systems ahead of time. So diversions are certainly in the news um, every single day. Um, you know, we hear people ask the question about um, or, or say that somebody, everybody knows somebody who's been affected by yeah. whether it's fentanyl or one of the other um, controlled substances. And so it's very similar for the ASCs. If you have not been impacted by a diversion, you know somebody who's been impacted yeah. by a diversion. So don't wait for it to happen to you to, to then develop systems. And don't assume all the time that it's not uh, not an actual diversion when you have a discrepancy. You know, investigate it as though every one of them could potentially be that. Absolutely. Um, I, I always say start with the math, but you have to start immediately and, and, mm -hmm. and try to mitigate the risk if, if there is an actual diversion going in place. Of course, you want to minimize the loss. And so... That requires immediate action and, um, and and following a stepwise you know approach to be um, you know to be comprehensive. Victor, it's always a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much, and uh, good luck in your speech. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. Our next interview was with Carolyn Holtz, 
Uh, she's a nurse, and she is the Senior Director of Clinical Operations at Regent Surgical Health. Carol Ann did a great presentation on credentialing and peer review, and, and the most enlightening part of her discussion uh, for me was about peer review. So I did have an opportunity to speak to her about peer review in the ASC setting. So let's listen. So this is John Gale. I'm here at the Massachusetts State Association meeting in, what is it, October of uh, 2022? Still October, yes. It is still October in, in Waltham, and this is a great conference, and this is the first time the Massachusetts Association got back together uh, after the pandemic. And I'm here with Carol Ann Holtz now. I had to get that last name down. And <laughs> Carol Ann, you just did a fantastic presentation on credentialing and peer review. Uh, one of my favorite topics, one of those areas that we talk about a lot on the, uh, the podcast. Mine too. But one thing we don't talk about a lot is peer review. So let's kind of focus on that in mm -hmm. our, our discussion today because sure. it is certainly one of your surveyor also yes. uh, with Triple H C too, mm -hmm. right? Yes. So we both know that this is an area that's becoming much more of a focus now, mm -hmm. uh, especially in the last, I'd say probably three to four years. Mm -hmm. And I don't know about you, but it's one area that I find when I'm doing surveys is almost always, almost always either deficient yes. or not quite where we all want to be so oh, yeah it's not robust usually it's yeah. not comprehensive it's usually just like a chore to get through yeah you know did we get the numbers right did we get the amount that we need to do but there's right. very little attention paid to um the quality of what's being reviewed and also the um i would say just the consideration like for the benchmarking or you know mm -hmm. how do you apply this data other than reappointing providers because it provides so much more value than just that well, and I think there's a perception that peer review is simply chart audits. Mm -hmm. And you made it very clear that there's so much more to mm -hmm. it. And as I'm listening to you, I'm also thinking, you know, we really need to spend a little bit more time talking about even, there were a couple questions from the audience about what's reportable and MPDB. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is a lot to chew off and yeah. you, you got to catch a plane. Yeah. Uh, we could be That's probably right. talking for hours. That's okay. But let's just focus on, first of all, just let's speak for a, a minute about mm -hmm. what, what is the biggest efficiencies we find in peer review programs and what can our centers do to enhance that? Yeah, I would say, I mean, the biggest ones that come to mind is maybe that they, they don't incorporate any documentation to support uh, the use of the peer review um, to support their reappointment periods, mm -hmm. reappraisals for providers. Um, so that's a big deficiency I often no, in see. In other words, actually getting that documentation to help support right. the re-credentialing at the board level. Right, yeah. actually aggregating the information yeah. and analyzing it and, and doing something with it to say, okay, yes, we, we have looked at everything and we are putting this person forth for reappointment. I think that's a huge issue and I think from an accreditation standpoint, that's huge. Um, I think sometimes the part about the adequate, um, you know, providers who are doing the actual peer review or that they actually have, you know, special criteria that they've mm -hmm. been a part of creating, that's also a big thing. I think sometimes there's a misunderstanding about what's required. So, for example, you don't want to, did, did the, the, the surgeon sign off on the uh, operative, uh, you know, notes or, or the, the orders? That that's something a nurse can do. Why waste the doctor's right. time for doing it? The nurses what is can the do content? a content review, right. but we need to have the providers really doing the appropriateness of yeah, care, yeah. patient selection, et cetera, all of those areas that they should have expertise on, right. which is why it's important. You know, ideally, you want to have those 
appropriate specialties reviewing one another mm -hmm. um, when you can. I think it, it's it's an important part to examine at your center is do we have the right people yeah. reviewing these cases? Um, and I have centers I've seen where they have an anesthesiologist who reviews all of the medical you know charts. Right. I don't know if that's that's really appropriate, and I yeah. think they need to be looking at that. And so looking at the appropriateness of the review process, who's doing it, what they're looking at, and the criteria. And how robust it is. And how robust it is. Yeah. I mean, if you have all of this data and you are not using it for the value that it provides, you're missing out on a great opportunity for a quality improvement. Yeah. I think you have to, that's that's part of your tying it into your quality improvement program. That's what you need to be doing. And it's only by using those, you know, performance criteria that you are you are looking at, you've established here are our criteria, here are our thresholds. Now we're going to look at each provider and where they fall into those categories. And you, like you showed you in this slide, you know, sort of who falls out, who are the outliers, yeah. and is it a provider problem or is it systemic? I mean, mm -hmm. I think if you don't really look at those very closely, you're missing out on a huge opportunity. And also for the point of talking about, you know, they want to suspend providers or terminate providers. Yeah. If you're not giving them the opportunity to improve, you are not doing due diligence. You're not really making the effort that you should be making for these providers because they also have rights. They also yeah. have rights to, to fair processes, you know, just because you see that they're not Maybe they're subpar in some areas. You have to address it early, as early as you can, and give them the opportunity to improve and and work with the um, medical director, work with their peers. Mm -hmm. It's really important. You know, there was a great question from the audience mm -hmm. about newer providers, in mm -hmm. other words, younger people, because we're starting to see that. Yes. It used to be that the only people who come for a surgery center is somebody that's already done a thousand of these procedures. Yes. But we know now that uh, that those opportunities, uh, those doctors are few and far between it. Now we're going to most likely see as, as people are retiring, younger people coming up through yeah. the ranks. Mm -hmm. And to your point, that's exactly it, is that you don't want to discourage, you don't want to just like brush somebody off who, right. who could probably learn from an event that occurred or for something that was not done rather than just getting rid of them. Right. Um, and and it, what an opportunity for these young guys because, or these young providers, I should say, uh, because we need to start looking at the future of ASCs. We need to start looking at these young right. providers and giving them a place to do their cases. Yeah. And part of that is going to be how do we incorporate this into what our current, mm -hmm. you know, processes look like and our, our current policies. If we don't make accommodation, then ultimately, you know, the center's going to die with, with the physicians yeah, yeah. as they leave. So we have to accommodate that, but we have to see how is that appropriate, how can we fit this in, and be somewhat open-minded and transparent with, with your medical staff about this yeah. is what we're looking at we have to do for growth, and we need to pull in these, you know, the people from your, like, medical exec committee, et cetera, and look at how do we accommodate this? How do we provide the, the right field mm -hmm. to give these these physicians a chance to spread their wings and to grow within the surgery center? So it's really important to do that. And I think it's also important to, um, aside from the processes that you have to uh, maybe look at within your center, you have to determine what percentage of your providers on your medical staff are going to be new because there's yeah. also going to be that offset of if they're not as efficient. So uh, let me ask you a question, and I'm sure you run into this a lot. We'll mm -hmm. go into a center as a surveyor, mm -hmm. and the peer review is, you know, 150 charts reviewed for the year, 100% compliance. 
Yeah. What is your immediate thought when you see that? Because I, I bet a lot of our listeners are in that boat. Yes. And it's not because, you know, remember, our listeners are the administrators and nurse managers. Yes. You know, for the most part. We have some medical directors. Yeah. But, uh, you know, so we don't have control over what those numbers are. Right. But we've got to kind of tell them that that's probably not acceptable anymore. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, with all due respect to their processes, hey, they might have really good review. Um, if it's 100%, I would say... If that's truly what you're getting back, then maybe go back to the drawing board and look yeah. at the criteria that you're looking at. Lower the bar. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, not, not the, not not lower the the quality, uh, but lower the bar so that you're looking at more things that you might not have been looking at before. Well, look at look at the criteria. Look at more more things. Maybe change it up. Maybe mm -hmm. add some things. Like I said, you know, talk to the uh, providers who are performing these procedures and say what criteria can we add that we're not looking at. Um, I think that you're doing yourself an injustice at the surgery center level if you're not doing a good job with the peer review. So anytime you have something that's 100%, you have to look at it from the perspective of, are we digging in enough? Are we yeah, actually, right. is this robust enough for to basically uh, support the quality improvement initiative? Because if right. it's not, then you could have the you know 100% till the cows come home, but then all of a sudden you're surprised by something that happens or there's an issue that comes up and it's completely lost in the noise. I mean, like I said, if you're not including compliance, mm -hmm. if you're not including uh, patient satisfaction, you're not including... In addition to these chart audits. In addition right. yeah, to all of the chart that. audits, I mean, you have to incorporate these other things. So, you know... Are they subpar? Or is yeah. the clinical observation that supports their competence? Yeah. If those things are not all tied into it, or their behavior, like I said, their conduct, yeah. uh, professional conduct, I mean, we're missing out on some really good stuff here because yeah. part of that is our responsibility to ensure that we're looking at quality improvement possibilities and that we are, um, I think, even just for the sake of holding them accountable as professionals because... Without professional accountability, you know, like I said, like I mentioned earlier in the talk about these bullies and whatever, we let people get away with things for an extended period of time without addressing them. How are we serving our patients that way? How are we serving our staff that way? If I was uh, a nurse still at a surgery center and I had a physician who was a constant threat to me as a bully or whatever, I would probably consider leaving because my work environment stinks. You right. know, I mean, this is this is part of what we need to consider. It's part of making the environment a uh, safe culture of reporting and a, you know, feeling good about what we're doing to take care of our patients. And that that really won't happen when you have, you know, somebody who's creating a toxic environment. So staying on the topic of mm -hmm. what other things should we be looking at, it strikes me that some of the initiatives that we worry about operationally as an administrator, director of nursing, like on-time starts, like um, uh, timeouts, mm -hmm. um, like the infection rates, mm -hmm. those are things that we should be including as part of peer review can help us out and are no doubt not going to be 100%. Absolutely. And I, so those are things you should be integrating into your peer review program, tracking the statistics there, mm -hmm. sharing them with the board, right. and then letting the medical director, you, you mentioned this too, mm -hmm. that you know it's not our responsibility as DON or, uh, right. or, or uh, administrator, it's really the medical director who has to kind of uh, fall onto this uh, bandwagon mm -hmm. or jump onto this bandwagon and start mm -hmm. working on it. So your thoughts, that you had a great slide on that, and just talk a little bit about how you can integrate that into a good robust peer review program. So John, you're referring to the performance dashboard that we were looking at, yeah. and I think that's a great way to 
um, as we said, you know, aligning your peer review uh, activities with your quality improvement program is you're looking at these performance indicators or yeah. your KPIs, whatever you want to call them, quality measures. You want to be able to line them up and really focus on each provider. What is their, you know, what's their rate on each of those areas? Mm -hmm. You're looking at their surgical site infections. You're looking at maybe their hospital transfers um, and, and other quality measures that you would put in there, burns if their patients have DVTs, whatever you're putting in there. Mm -hmm. But then you want to also um, incorporate, like I said, patient satisfaction. Um, mm -hmm. What are the comments that they're getting from patients from their experience? If you're getting comments about issues with communication, issues with wait times, just general problems around uh, scheduling, communication, et cetera, those should be incorporated in as well because right. it's all about the patient experience. We're doing all of this because we want patients to have a high-quality experience, a safe experience. and. When we have these outliers, it's our duty to actually, you know, look at what are the thresholds here. If mm -hmm. this person is not meeting the threshold um, as a provider, we need to address it. We need to look at it sooner than later. Yeah, it's important to be able to look at these individual measures and benchmark them against each other. Because right. the other thing is, you know, I mentioned during the talk, you can't... You can't go to the your executive committee, your medical director, your governing board, and just say, this provider is not doing a great job. Yeah, you need to yeah. quantify everything. You need to be able to show what is their performance compared to their peers. And mm -hmm. it's only when you have that in black and white in front of them that you have something substantive to be able to support that. Absolutely. Yeah. This has been great. I so much appreciate your time. I, we were talking before we uh, turned the microphone on here that uh, we really probably need to do a full conference on something like this because I think peer review, you got a lot of great questions. I mean, that I got great questions. Uh, should be an indicator that this is something the audience wants to hear. Oh, from. it's so important. I mean, yeah. it, if we haven't learned anything even from like Dr. Death and stuff like that, I mean, cr yeah. credentialing um, and peer review is, it's, it's a lifeline. It's That's a lifeline right. to the safety and high quality care that we're providing our patients and we can't take it lightly. Right. You know? Thank you so much, Carol Ann. You're I know welcome. you got to catch a plane. You're welcome, John. Thank you so much. Sure. I appreciate it. For the next interview, I'm actually going to play a little trick on everyone. During the conference, Bill Prentice uh, spoke about the national outlook for ASCs, but it is the same conversation that he had during the California Association. And instead of putting poor Bill through a second interview, uh, he and I agreed that I would just pull the one from California. So, so let's listen to the interview I did in California, which really was pretty much the same information that he uh, gave while he was uh, speaking in Massachusetts. So I'm here at the uh, California Association meeting in September of 2022, and I'm here with Bill Prentice. He's the chief executive officer at ASCA. And uh, Bill joins us a couple times a year. Thank you, Bill, for uh, for coming on the, the podcast here, talk a little bit about what's going on. Last time you and I spoke, it was before uh, the new payment rule for 2023, the proposed payment rule came out. So um, can we start by talking a little bit about, you know, what were some of the major events or things that came about in the uh, in the proposed rule? Well, thank you, John. It's always a pleasure to spend a few minutes with you and uh, and and talk about what's going on in the ASC space. When it comes to uh, our proposed uh, CMS payment rule, uh, Medicare payment rule this year, uh, you know the usual buckets. You know, what are we going to be reimbursed? You know, how are we going to be updated for inflation? You know, what procedures are going to be added to our list? Uh, and you know, are there going to be any significant changes to our quality reporting program? Uh, 
when, like taking first things first when it comes to, to payment, uh, we're a bit disappointed in the inflationary update that's yeah. been proposed. Only 2.7% you know, for both us and hospital outpatient apartments. Especially in light of all of the dramatic increases that we're experiencing, especially in salary costs or, or well, it, wage exa- costs. It, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think we all can see the impact of overall inflation in our personal lives. Yeah. And, and since most, you know, generally Medicare, uh, excuse me, medical inflation is uh, higher than mm-hmm. overall inflation, a 2.7% increase uh, seems, you know, way too, uh, too low. Uh, so we're obviously going to be advocating for for a, a fresh look at that data and hoping right. that we get a higher inflationary update by the time the rule is finalized in November. And uh, you and I were talking before we started the recording here. Uh, you know, I've been around a long time, actually in the industry longer than you. And I remember in 2008 when... Stop bragging. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I don't think it's bragging. <laughs> in 2008, when we moved to the new reimbursement system, there was a lot of talk about the importance of us being tied to the hospital system. It seemed counterintuitive at the time, but um, but I think we're running into that same situation right now with this uh, the, the payment rule update. Yeah, for listeners uh, who have not paid close attention to this, uh, a reminder that this is the fifth year of a pilot program where CMS has been updating ASCs for inflation using the same inflation factor as uh, hospital outpatient departments, the hospital market basket. Before that, we were being updated using a a broad inflationary um, factor called the Consumer Price Index for Urban Consumers. And most years, that mm-hmm. CPIU would spit out an inflation number that, as I mentioned, would lower than right. the hospital market basket, again, because medical inflation generally runs higher. This is one of those odd years, though, yeah. where probably if we were on the CPIU, we'd get a higher inflationary update right. um, than, than what has been pro- proposed using the market basket. I'd argue, though, that because in most years that is yeah. not the case – and because I think being aligned with the hospitals in terms of having an interest in having the, the best possible inflationary update, having their lobbying power, their market power, you know, working on our behalf in this, right. you know, to this extent to try and get the, a good inflationary update, um, we're better off staying on the, on the market basket. Right. As I mentioned, this is the fifth year of that pilot. So there is, you know, a chance that next year, we could be revert back to the CPIU or something even worse, you know, a change CPIU, which is a, an even a, a number that you know spits out even a, a lower inflationary yeah. number. Um, we're arguing, of course, that because of the pandemic, the last right. two years, volume numbers are suspect. Right. And as a result, they really need more data about this pilot. So they should extend it for at least a couple more years right. and hopefully extend it permanently. Something we're also trying to get addressed legislatively. And I think another piece of good news right now is that we know the hospitals are not any happier about this low increase as, as like us. Uh, no, they, they they'll make a big fight for it. They have been very uh, outspoken in terms of their concerns about this uh, this this number, and so to the extent uh, our combined voices through you know our comments to the proposed rule and things that you know we're saying publicly uh, lead CMS to you know, make a, a change and, and increase that number, uh, I think we'll all benefit, and our patients will benefit as well. Right. One of the challenges that I think we have right now, one of the things that we've noted, you know, ambulatory surgery centers we know are, are a lower cost alternative. You know, our reimbursement rate is considerably lower than the hospitals built right into the CMS system. So we've always been making this argument that it's a cheaper place to go. 
but there has been a bit of a problem with that with regard to the copay cap. Now, we've talked about this before, but I think it bears uh, repeating the importance of moving this. So why don't you talk a little bit about what that is and what we're doing to try to fight it? Yeah, the, the copay cap is something that is a complete head scratcher to anybody who, who spends a couple of minutes thinking about it, which is the copay cap is uh, a, a law that basically limits what a Medicare beneficiary will pay uh, as a copay when they receive care in the hospital. Right. And so for uh, this year, that's $1,556 is the maximum amount a beneficiary would pay. I think I have that number right. Uh, meaning that it doesn't matter if that uh, procedure you're getting in the hospital costs thirty dollars or $40,000, you're not going to pay more than $1,500 some odd dollars right. as a copay. There is no copay for care being pre- provided to a Medicare beneficiary in the ambulatory there's surgery no center. no copay cap. No copay cap. Right. So what that means is, is that there's this perverse disincentive now yeah. for a Medicare beneficiary where it will cost her more out of her pocket to get a lower cost procedure in a surgery center right. than a higher cost procedure in the hospital. Yeah. So we as taxpayers are being disadvantaged by this perverse disincentive. Um, So we're looking uh, legislatively in our ASC legislation to create a copay cap for our setting as well. And and this matters because, you know, when this original copay cap was established for the hospitals, that was before ASCs were really performing high cost uh, procedures like like total joints and and spine procedures uh, with high device costs. Now that we're doing more of those higher cost procedures, um, this copay cap has really self-identified itself as a real barrier to care mm-hmm. uh, for Medicare beneficiaries that we need to address, particularly those Medicare beneficiaries that don't have like an additional like Medigap coverage. Right. So this is the lower income Medicare beneficiary, uh, more likely to be a, a beneficiary of color that is going to be disadvantaged by this uh, by this barrier and something we need to get Congress to address. And we need to make it clear, we're, we're in favor of the cap. We just want to make sure it's applying uh, equally it, it, well, to the hospital. Exactly. That, I mean, look, we know that the, the cost of medical care, um, particularly for Medicare beneficiaries, is a real stress on them. And so we yeah. need this copay cap to apply both in the hospital and the surgery center. Another thing that was interesting in this most recent one, when I when I read the the, the proposal, the 2023 uh, CMS proposal, uh, that only one procedure was added this year. Probably the I, I I'd have to go back and look at my records, but I think it's the lowest number of procedures added in um, in certainly recent history. Uh, I, I think that's that's the case, and and we actually had offered up 47 different yeah. per- specific procedures that we believe could be safely performed on appropriate Medicare beneficiaries in the ASC setting. So to have only one of those procedures uh, being added is 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 really uh, just terrible. Especially uh, post-pandemic when we know that there's a movement already, uh, and especially in other insurance companies from the hospital into the surgery center. Exactly. And when you see what is moving on the commercial side, particularly in patients near Medicare age yeah. and the things that we're able to do, and so total shoulders, total shoulders total ankles. There's a, a host of different procedures that we could be performing that we really need to get added to our list. Right. One of the things that we've seen in this this proposed rule as well as last year's was a, a really odd um, 
term being raised by CMS, which is the idea that a procedure has to be safe for a typical Medicare beneficiary yeah. in order to be safely put onto our list. Since there's no definition, we don't understand what they mean by a typical Medicare right. beneficiary. That's you know, we're basically fighting a ghost there, yeah. as well as the fact that that just goes you know completely ignores the whole underpinnings of the ASC model, which is that we use patient selection criteria to make sure that every patient that comes into a surgery center is safe and can be safely seen there, that they don't have comorbidities or other health conditions um, that would would create a higher risk to to receive care in an ASC. And take the pressure off the hospital so they can focus on the more intensive patients. Well, well, exactly. So so this this straw man of this typical Medicare beneficiary is something that we need to get them to to do away with because it it really doesn't make sense and I think is really harmful uh, to the growth of the Medicare program and to the ability to use the ASC to save um, billions of dollars a year. Right. Just just to remind people, the, the fact that we exist as a site of service in the Medicare program saves that program yeah. over $4 billion a year. $4 billion that can be used to provide care in other ways and in other settings. So uh, why CMS is not more incentivized yeah. to try and drive volume to our setting and increase that number Again, to create greater savings in the overall program that can be used to provide other benefits and other care in other ways uh, mystifies me. And lastly, I I think something that both you and I are very passionate about is uh, the leadership challenges that we're dealing with. Right, I, we have a staffing challenge too, but uh, that, that's a discussion for another day. But um, what we have found during the pandemic is uh, a lot of retirements of senior uh, nursing and administrator staff, even business office uh, people, and a lot of new people coming into the industry. I've run into a lot of them. I did a boot camp here for uh, for the California Association on Finances, which was a lot of fun, but a lot of new people. Some of them coming from outside of the healthcare industry. Some of them coming from the healthcare industry, um, or or from education, where they had a lot of education, say, uh, say on the physician side or in the hospital side, because there really is no education programs in colleges and universities for our type of a setting. Um, let's talk a little bit about you know what's going on there and the need for mentoring of our. Uh, of our leadership and you know uh, development of uh, our future leaders here. Yeah, I, I think the the overall staffing shortage issue that we're seeing and this leadership challenge, are, I think, are interrelated. Yeah, I, I think that That's you know they, they are separate to in some to some degree, but I think they are related. I think that that this is a problem that has been you know long in coming, and I yeah. think the pandemic obviously really. Um, push things a, a, a lot faster because of the the resignations we've seen, the decisions by people to just throw up their hands and yeah. retire. And and I think that has led to both a, you know, an overall staff shortage, but I think we are also seeing a leadership shortage yeah. in terms of, you know, where where are the next generation of administrators and and CEOs of surgery centers going to come from and are they going to have the breadth of knowledge and training and experience right. uh, they need in order to succeed and to make sure that our ASCs continue to provide the, 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 the great efficiencies, um, the great patient safety and the great quality that we have um, come to expect. So I, you know, your boot camps, I think our administrator development program right. um, is a way to, to try and address that so that we can find either new administrators or uh, people who want to become administrators and give them the training and tools um, so that they can, you know, lead a surgery center um, and and help a surgery center succeed, you know, today and into the future. Uh, one of the things that our program focuses on is is basically uh, connecting 
a new administrator or a soon-to-be administrator, a mentee, with a mentor, someone right. with you know, with experience in the ASC setting, um, a proven record of success that they can turn to, you know, outside of the classroom, outside right. of the training the sessions, to ask questions of and, and to get you know to, in a non-threatening way, in, in a very non-threatening yeah, yeah. way, um, to be able to you know ask the ask the the, the stupid question, right? Yeah. Of course, there are no stupid questions, right. but you know, sometimes people feel like I, I think I'm, I, I probably pe- people expect that I know this. You know, and I'll just muddle my way through. Yeah. But now they have a trusted, you know, person they can turn to, ask that question, get the answer, and, and then obviously, you know, apply that, in, you know, in their surgery center. So I think it's something that you know we have to spend a lot of a time and attention on. Right. Um, it's something that's uh, I, I think the initial reviews from our program, and I'm sure you're seeing the same with yours, yeah. is really positive and it's yeah. something that i think we're going to grow over time because i think this is a problem that's not going to go away right and and i what i love about your program too is that that one-on-one mentoring um also assists not only to have somebody to ask the questions for but also to introduce people to other in the individuals in the industry and so and so i remember the first time i came 32 years ago to the yeah. first ASCA conference i didn't know anybody right but you know i have i have no problem going up and introducing myself to any you know people not everybody is that way and i think this provides a great opportunity during right. conferences just it, it, exactly that because part of our program does involve them coming to our in-person meetings yep. and with that mentor and then meeting people and obviously getting the experience of that being live in in a you know right in an ASC environment we also, though, recognize for some people that's just not going to work. So yeah. actually, this year we're developing a virtual version of that program. You're still going to have one-on-ones with a mentor and be able right. to, you know, zoom with them or potentially meet them in person if they're you're in your area, but yeah. allow you to get that education and training in a virtual format rather than in person if that just doesn't work for you. So right. now there's two different ways of doing it, but it also creates two different opportunities during the year yeah. to start this program rather than have to wait a whole calendar year to get you know get started. Um, yeah. So this is something I think is only going to grow. I, yeah. I very much appreciate you know the, the ASCA volunteers that are serving as mentors, our education committee, which you've been on, right. uh, to, to help develop this program. And I, I think it's one of the ways we can ensure that the ASC model not just survives, you know, where we yeah. are in healthcare, but thrives. Absolutely, and I think for all of our listeners out there, um, they need to remember that you're never alone in this industry. I no. mean, there are no secrets. Uh, um, you know, we, we share our policies, we share our resources, and we share, you know, our knowledge, you know, through these yeah. one-on-one relationships. I, I think unlike almost any other healthcare setting, the ASC is a is a welcoming environment. Yeah, like when sure. you come to any of these meetings, people are so willing to try and help out, answer questions, you know, help yeah. each other out. We saw that our last ASCA in-person conference, the the, the number of people that asked questions or or, mm-hmm. or added to, to the conversation during sessions was uh, was really great to see. And you know the, the thing I'll, I I always just remark upon because I think it, we take it for granted. The ASC community is the most optimistic community yeah, in the healthcare space. Isn't that true? It is. It, you know, if you spend times in, in other settings, there is so much negativity yeah. and so much you know focusing on what's going wrong. The ASC setting, you know, from the you know, physician leaders to the administrators to the clinical staff to everyone, they just have a more optimistic view right. of, of where things are heading. I mean, obviously, we have plenty of challenges, plenty, plenty of problems to overcome. Yeah. So I'm not trying to, you know, just blue sky this, but 
Overall, I think because we figured out a better way to provide health care and to make patients not only get the health care they need, but do it in a safe way mm-hmm. and in a patient-friendly way, that just leads to a, like a more optimistic view of, of, of where things are. And so I just kudos to, to everyone listening out there in the ASC community because you've made this the best place to, to, to work in the healthcare you know, uh, sphere. And lastly, right, I promise this is last, the uh, importance of becoming a member of ASCA and, of course, becoming a member of CASA. Here we are at the CASA conference. And the importance of being members of both. Yeah. I, look, there are personal benefits to it because then, you know, as we've been talking about, you you get to interact with other people yeah. that are experiencing the same problems and challenges you are. Um, so it's going to allow you to do a better job in your in your work and, and obviously just access better information. The, the ability to get the education and training, uh, right. to, to stay at the top of your field that you can only get at, at an, an ASE conference, whether it's a state conference like CASA or, or any of the ASCA meetings or any yeah. of our online virtual uh, offerings. And then thirdly, um, the, the support you get financially by, you know, paying your registration fee for, for a conference and being a member, your membership dues are the only way that we can, you know, support advocate. the ASC community, that we can afford to, to, you know, hire people to advocate for ASCs in Washington or in state capitals to yeah. put on the education and training, to be able to communicate, you know, what the ASC model is doing to uh, to the, the larger world, whether it's the healthcare media or policymakers or payers. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so every dollar that you, you, give to ASCO or your state association is being turned around to support the healthcare model that you're working in to make your life easier and to make sure that your patients get the care they need. Absolutely. As always, Bill, thank you so much. Thank you for everything you do for the industry. Obviously, we've uh, we got a great story. That's why I think we're so optimistic. We have a great story post-pandemic. Well, well thank you, John. You have been a tremendous advocate um, in the ASC community. The education you provide on particularly on financial issues is just, yeah. you know, been, been outstanding. You've been a great friend to ASCA and to me, and I, I thank you for this opportunity to spend a few minutes with you and your listeners. Always. Thank you so much. All right. And our next interview was with Rhonda Wallace. She is the lobbyist for the Massachusetts Association of Ambulatory Surgery Centers. And she spoke about uh, the legislative activities in Massachusetts. So this is John Gailey. I'm at the Massachusetts State Association meeting in Waltham, Massachusetts uh, in mid-October. I'm here with Rhonda Wallace, who is the lobbyist for the State Association. And Rhonda, this is actually our first time recording a special episode from uh, Massachusetts. And of course, it's the first time you've had a conference, a live conference since uh, 2019. So it's great to be back here. It's great to be with all of my friends here from Massachusetts. And it's great to to talk to you again. So what's going on? Yeah, the same. Thank you. So what's going on in Massachusetts? So um, politically in Massachusetts, this is uh, the end of a two-year session. Um, and uh, so uh, the legislature is informal now, and that means that they are only taking up non-substantive matters. Everything substantive would have had to be voted on by July, by the very end of July. Obviously, this is an election year, and that's why the legislature is an informal session. So most of the issues that we've been watching have been resolved in one way or another. Either they've been passed or they're dead. 
Well, so what have been some of the major issues that you've been dealing with in the last year? Or uh, we probably should talk about the last couple of years. So. <laughs> so, um, well, let's see. Um, there are out-of-network issues, out-of-network being falling into two categories, one being um, imposition of a default formula for out-of-network services, yeah. and the other piece being uh, price transparency requirements. Now, these are issues that we are dealing with, with not only on the state level, but we're also dealing with them on the federal level right. in the Federal No Surprises Act, which you're no doubt very familiar yeah, with. Yeah, and we've talked a lot about it quite a bit on the, uh, the podcast. Oh, wonderful, too. right. Yeah. It's quite a quite quite the law. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, but anyway, it's kind how, of... How is it different in Massachusetts then? Well, so that actually is... So um, what we here in Massachusetts are advocating for is no action on the state level and to defer to the, to federal, the federal law. Okay. Because we really think in addition... Um, there's consistency across states yeah. on that. Um, it has been carefully negotiated out, um, and there's buy-in on both on all sides of it. So, why should we reinvent the wheel yeah. here in Massachusetts? What we're saying on the state level is do nothing to further to the uh, the federal No Surprises Act. Um, we have successfully beat back legislative efforts to impose a default formula okay. because the default formula that they were looking to impose here in Massachusetts was you're not talking about out of network I, yeah, yeah I am right. talking about yeah. out of network correct yeah. um, uh, is uh, it's, it's some of them some of the bills were 125 percent of Medicare which is uh, very yeah. low very low the federal um, is more closer to the median in network rate yeah um, but what we were looking at here in Massachusetts was worse than that so yeah. we're doing better on the federal level. Also, on the, the price transparency requirements, yeah. which you know we also call notice and disclosure, which means your facility needs to tell people how much it's going to cost and everything, and including if you refer a patient to another provider, what their network status is yeah. and what there is. And that's very difficult information for staff to do. I mean, we think it's better to, it would be a better idea to get that information from the insurers, which right. is the most obvious place we should be. But So um, we did here in Massachusetts pass our own price transparency requirements, and um, they were supposed to take effect in last January, I believe. And we successfully got the Massachusetts State Legislature to back away from the we do everything better stance yeah. and to delay implementation of the of the the price transparency provisions again Massachusetts price transparency provisions were worse than the federal government. Yeah. They were much more provider-oriented rather than insurer-oriented, which the Fed's a little bit more. So yeah. those are two huge wins that we had here in Massachusetts. One issue, in fact, I was just asked Bill Prentice this question about what other states. Another issue we always ba battle here in Massachusetts is the determination of need. Yeah. Um, or, or a certificate of need. They, certificate. they call it the, a determination of need here in uh, Massachusetts, most other states are CONs. Uh, yeah. Correct, exactly. Yeah. For um, our other listeners who are not from Massachusetts. That, no, I understand <laughs> completely. In fact, most states, I believe, it's just it's the CON. CON. Right. Yeah. Told you, Massachusetts is I know, different. you got to be different. <laughs> <laughs> um, we always, um, in my work with my advocacy work, you know, for the association, I am always battling legislation you know, aimed at ASCs to tighten mm -hmm. up the DON process even further for ASCs. Yeah. 
every year there's legislation pending to do so. And every year we testify against it. And so far, knock on wood, we beat back these bills. Right. But How tough is it? Uh, you know, we don't really have any clients in Massachusetts at this point. Uh, how tough is it to get determination and need in this? It is very tough yes. still. It's time-consuming. It's costly. Yeah. It's difficult. Um, one of their, the um, existing facilities are grandfathered in for what they are now, and that's right. a blessing. That would, That's not a blessing. We fought for that. Right, right. Um, but, um, you know, to start a new one is very, very difficult, difficult, including you have to get approval if you're in the catchment area of your local hospital. Uh, so it's largely the hospitals that are por- forcing this issue. That's right. It's not so much insurance companies right now. It's the hospitals. That's exactly. Actually, insurance companies are our friends. Yeah, you would they think should so. be, right. and they are. They they really yeah. are. Yeah, they've been our, our allies on this issue. But obviously, and again, Bill Prentice was just talking about yeah. this in his presentation. Um, you know, there there's competition with the right. hospitals. They and surprisingly, legislators do not hear the cost and quality issue. They're like, right. I need to protect my local hospital. Right. Are there any other initiatives, like in other states right now, we're dealing with, you and I just attended the presentation from a bill before this, and one of the audience members mentioned the issue of cardiology. That is a problem. I mean, nationally, they're allowing it, but of course, many of the states are not. Like, I'm from New York. New York does not allow cardiology mm-hmm. at that point. What's going on in Massachusetts? Sounds like Nothing they're against in that. it. Not at all. So they're not allowing not, it. No, yeah. No. Is there any movement? Is that some, one of those things you're working on? or um, Not right now. We okay. haven't really. That avenue hasn't really been open to us in a while. Got They're it. definitely not saying now, you know, that is something that we can try to advocate for a little bit more in the um, better next year. Noteworthy in this discussion, though, is the fact that we're going to have a new governor, and that's going to mean a new secretary of health and human services, and that's going to mean a new commissioner of the Department of Public Health. Gotcha. And then we hopefully might be able to open that door up a little bit again. But right now... Because yeah. it's a lame duck administration, they're not interested in making any changes. So it's something that in the next couple of years. Well, it's definitely going to be a national initiative, and certainly the states are going to have to jump in. And that would be great because yeah. it's uh, hopefully we can build on that energy. Any other uh, initiatives going on that we uh, in moving into the future? Continue to support our entities, our facilities as best we can. Yeah. Um, membership in the association is always a challenge. We yeah. only have about three quarters of the ASCs. Obviously, if we were a little bit bigger and stronger, you know, we'd have a stronger voice. Right. So that's one of our battles all the time. Um, but that's a perpetual battle with our yeah. associations, really. Um, one of the things that I will be focused on as the advocate for the association next year is trying to um, educate the um, the Healy administration yeah. um, and the Secretary of Health and Human Services and whoever is chosen for the Department of Public Health. Plus, there's going to be new legislators in the House and the Senate. Right. So um, education, and again, this is something that Bill touched on. Yeah. So many of these legislators who are voting on bills that affect facilities, they don't really know what an ASC is. Right. So education is always a big priority of our advocacy efforts. And do you uh, have an advocacy day here like we we're doing nationally, or is that something that's uh, in the cards? Shortly? You know, we have had them in the past. Yeah. Um, and then obviously with COVID, we got derailed a little bit, but that's an excellent idea. Yeah. And I think that we should work on that next year. 
Well, and uh, so for all of our listeners here, we'll, we'll say this a couple more times in our interviews, but please become a member of the Massachusetts Association. We'll provide a link in our show notes for that, but you need uh, ongoing We need everyone's uh, membership. support. Yeah, absolutely. And we appreciate your amplifying that message for us, John. Thank <laughs> My you. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Ron. I and appreciate your time. And anything we can do here in Massachusetts for you. And our last interview was with... Greg DeConcilius, he's the president of the Massachusetts ASC Association, and I was able to to uh, tie him down for just 15 minutes, though, Sue, while you were editing, you noted that he was interrupted about 15 times during our interview, uh, but we did have a great time uh, reconnecting and also talking about what's going on in Massachusetts and with the Massachusetts Association, so let's listen. So I am here at the, the Northeast ASC Conference in uh, Waltham, Massachusetts, and I'm sitting with Greg DeConcilius, who is my dear friend, with uh, who's the president and uh, kind of uh, runs the whole show here for the State Association. Greg, this is great to be back. First time since 2019. Yep. It's been a while yep. together here. And thank you for coming and talking. Talking. It's great. That's great. Yeah. I had a competition with Lori just to see who would get the most people in the room. <laughs> I think Lori won. But it's all right. I won't take it personally yeah. there. But a great audience, great questions from the audience. Clearly, yeah. you've got a very intelligent group of people here who uh, are not afraid to ask those tough yeah, questions of, of their listeners. Yeah. So I thought we'd just sit down and talk a little bit about what's been going on with the state association. You know, there aren't a lot of state associations, of course, up in the um, in New England area. Yeah. And uh, you call yourself the Northeast because you pull people from New Hampshire. The what? What is it? One yeah. center from Vermont. Yeah, one and, from Vermont. Yeah. So, so we the the conference where we we kind of morphed into the Northeast because yeah, I think as we saw in New Hampshire, which Lori was involved in, mm-hmm. you know, kind of fade off of their association. Of course, Maine, Vermont. I think only has a couple of ASCs. Maine, same thing. Yeah. And then um, even Rhode Island, I think doesn't have a strong association. Connecticut does, of course. Right. So um, so we we started the conference eight years ago or ten years ago, but. With, no COVID years because we're looking for kind of a, a low cost local local conference for all the ASCs here in the Northeast. But the Mass Association has been around forever. I of course I've been at this for about 18, 19 years, and I've been president now for who knows, I think eight, eight yeah. years and vice president for I think four before that. And it's interesting. We have, I think we have fifty-eight ASCs here in the mm-hmm. state, and I'd say probably at any given time a half to two thirds are members. Yeah. And of course we always see membership surge when there's you know, two thousand sixteen there was DUN regulation changes. Right. And of course during COVID we had a, a kind of a surge as well. And and not only is it hard, I think, to recruit people, but you know, tracking the recruiting of it and like, you know, who's mm-hmm. paid, new hasn't like it's when a lot of us are volunteers, it, it yeah. makes it kind of difficult. But but I think I think our members certainly saw the value during during COVID. We we tried to have like kind of constant communication, not mm-hmm. only on on state updates, but anything kind of clinically we were hearing federally and all that kind of stuff. It was a, it was a nice little network and people would go back and forth over email with questions. And it, it, it was a nice little networking tool. I think that added value to kind of where people were at, you know, yeah. uh, we do a fair amount of, uh, of work with the insurers. Cause a lot of our, our contracts are kind of state contracts. We work with the insurers, work with, you know, federal agency. I mean the, the state agencies like DPH and mm-hmm. board of registration medicine, that kind of thing. So there's a lot that goes into it. And I think in turn, we try and provide value to the, to the members, you know. Yeah. And you actually have a pretty good percentage. Many of these state associations don't come close to you. I think New York is around 60% of the centers okay. are in the membership. Uh, but we want to encourage all of our listeners, obviously, in uh, the Northeast to, to join up and, uh, you know, participate in these conferences. You had great vendor, you know, turnout here, yeah. too. It's a yeah, it was awesome. nice conference center, by the way. We're here at the Massachusetts Medical, uh, Medical yeah. Association Conference yeah. Center in Waltham. Yeah, they Beautiful do a really nice job up here. Yeah, it's and great lunch. For a while. Yeah. Great lunch. So if that doesn't
doesn't get you to come to these associations. <laughs> I'll tell you, the vendors, it's been nice to have the vendors because um, we, we find they come and they get value out of it and they, and they yeah. stay on year after year. And so we just kind of kind of built it over the years now for sure. So when you put together this uh, year's conference, what were your real goals? I mean, obviously one of them is just getting yeah. back together again. Well, it's funny. We, you know, you, you, as I talked about, there's kind of volunteer effort and kind of, we were talking, um, you know, about, about putting a leg work in for this kind of, this kind of conference. We even surveyed our members about what they want to hear or what, you know, what, what do they want for talks? Mm -hmm. And we rarely get much feedback, which is, which gets a little frustrating. So we try and uh, we know the hot topics, right? You know, business topics and, and, you know, fish control, those sorts of things. So, what we did this past year was um, a bunch of us went to ASCA. Mm -hmm. And so we, we actually had, I think, three or four of the folks who spoke at ASCA. We asked them to actually come out here again mm -hmm. because we feel like ASCA and tr not only the cost of going to ASCA, which isn't that unreasonable, yeah. but the, the travel. Yeah. Also, a lot of the mom and pop you know, little ASCs can't afford it. And so we had them kind of come to us. And so we come up with the agenda ourselves as an executive board. Yeah. And we love to take feedback. I also try and, and get folks who um, are in the area, like there's a... A great orthopedic center from Maine. I asked them to come speak, mm -hmm. and, and they were tied up. Uh, we've had people speak from the Connecticut Association. And so local folks, I think, is always nice. We talked about your experience. But obviously, yeah. some like yourself, people who speak on a national level, it's nice to have them come and speak as well. Kind of bring the big conference to the, right. to the small association. To the ones that are yeah. just not going to go yeah. to the national one no matter yeah. what. Uh, and uh, you only have one conference a year, right? Correct. You know, we've, we've talked about going <laughs> off to this model like Connecticut has. I think a quarterly they have, they have quality and safety ones. It's interesting. We, we've, we've also toyed with doing um, webinar uh, webinars, and we've had mixed results. I think maybe mm -hmm. some of it's timing related, but I, I think that's maybe just some value added more we try and do for our members. Yeah. Again, we don't get so much, as much feedback as we want, but something we'll try and do this year a little bit more. Well, and, and we as a podcast, you and I have been talking. We've been talking with the other state associations to see if the through the podcast and our capability to do virtual conferences, whether we might be able to find something to bring the states and the Northeast together, yeah. not just the the uh, New England area, but like New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, see if yeah, we can yeah. leverage that in a more enjoyable way. I mean, yeah. a lot of these webinars are just not quite what people want. You know, yes. they want feedback, they want uh, interaction, they want the ability to ask questions. And uh, it's funny, I'm seeing a little bit of a change in the guard. I feel like there's been some uh, some, some administrators and clinical folks who've been around for a while, and I mm -hmm. see I've seen new faces. Yeah, and from what I was just talking to. I think that may bring different experience levels. And so I think, again, like the podcast, you know, and, and get, having ways for people to get educated, yeah. you know, is, is, is a great thing. And, and whether people think, even if it's one person takes advantage of it, right. it's worthwhile, you know. Well, it's just tough for people to get out now. we yeah. got to find some unique ways to approach them. Yeah. Talk a little bit about the other advantages of membership here. In this state, Massachusetts, we're very hospital dominated. And so we struggle with trying to keep the hospitals with certain policies, particularly with the insurers, et cetera. We've worked on things over the years, like set of service differentials, those sorts of things. And of course, once the hospitals get wind, they that stuff sometimes goes away. And so, yeah. Um, and you also have a very tough uh, determination of need, uh, certificate yeah. of need in other states, but yes. uh, yeah. Massachusetts calls it determination. Yeah. And probably one of the strictest ones in the country. And so, for us, I think you know we try and encourage you know the critical mass. If we get more and more people involved, we can get more. You know, we'll sometimes put out a survey to get data for you know, making our point for, for this or that. And so working with the insurers is, is probably one of the biggest things because having a state contract, you know, we'll, we'll go there as a critical mass and try and negotiate different rates or negotiate additional codes or, or stuff like that. And then just overall state, uh, I think, you know, as a state agencies, like, like Board of Registration of Medicine, they try and put out different reporting, you know, reporting tools and those types of things. We try and work with them to make them 
to make them simpler, to, to, to make them more focused and that type of thing. And so I think if we didn't have our association and didn't have our membership being very active, we wouldn't be able to go to these groups and, and talk intelligently and kind of get feedback on kind of what works and what doesn't. So I think that's where we bought the most value. Mm -hmm. So what do you think is going to be your uh, – coming to the biggest challenges in the next year? What are, what's on the horizon for Massachusetts? It's funny. I, I talked to a few people that I know who usually come to this conference, and um, I thought people – there would have been we – didn't, we didn't have as much tendency as we have in the past. I thought it was because of COVID. Maybe people were scared or whatever. I talked to probably three or four people who just couldn't come because they weren't staffed. There was no, not enough staff. Absolutely. And so I think staffing is um, – and, and, you know, getting specialized staff, surgical techs, nurses, et cetera – you know, being able to pay them like Mass General does, who gets yeah. three to four times the amount we do for a given case. You know, it's, it's a struggle, and we're seeing that every single day. And, you know, bringing those skilled staff members in, it, you know, we've had we've had a surgical tech vacancy probably for four months, yeah. you know, and uh, now we're cross-training folks, but it's difficult. So I think that's the biggest thing. I think maybe just, you know, dealing with the the ebbs and flows of, of COVID. And, you know, we had some a little COVID infestation with work. A few people had a few surgeons, you know, and, mm -hmm. and cancellations and Waxing and volume, those types of things are obviously, you know, the forefront as yeah, well. Yeah, it's really not going away. No. You're not going away. No. Well, as always, Greg, it's great. Thank you so yeah. much for uh, for having me out here. And uh, we'll uh, provide a link on the uh, website oh, to uh, the membership here. Great. And great. we'll uh, see you next year. We appreciate all you do for the ASCs. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Yeah. yeah. All right. This episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems trivalence, and ambulatory healthcare strategies. Surgical Information Systems provides cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers. Trivalence offers a comprehensive next-generation ASC solution that optimizes payment and supply chain performance, enabling actionable insights. Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies is the nation's leading regulatory and accreditation compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute, legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. If you are interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com.